0: you might have guessed again this morning we're in the book of jude that little uh one pager that's just for the book of revelation and i encourage you to open your bible to that and that way you'll be ready as i was uh, looking at the material again this morning and then looking at where we're going to be heading i realize that we will not be speeding through the book of jude so just uh bear with me and may the lord uh uh, answer your prayers as I do my study and research and as I share different things with you that I believe the Lord has laid on my heart from this book but and we were in Jude and as you might recall the Holy Spirit had moved on Jude's heart uh, so deeply that he changed his direction as he sat down to write this letter uh, to his brothers and sisters in Christ and I mentioned most likely those folk he wrote to were probably the same folk that Peter had written to and in verse 3, Jude expresses to his readers this action that the Holy Spirit had impressed upon his heart. In verse 3, he says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. And that's God's strong appeal to you and me as well, contend earnestly For the faith, for the once-for-all delivered faith. In other words, we're talking about the Bible, the written word of God that he has given us here. And it's God's complete written revelation uh, to you and me, and certainly you must be aware that it is under attack even today, maybe more so than ever before. Last week we saw what happened when we allowed the Holy Spirit to lead in our lives, as we find Jude did here in verse 3. First, we express a genuine concern for our brothers and sisters. And you would expect that, would you not? I mean, we're a family. A redeemed family and no matter where you go you find redeemed folk and god moves upon your heart as you meet them both having fellowship but encouraging each other praying for one another and and so forth and so there's a genuine concern for our brothers and sisters secondly though uh, we saw that our focus becomes more and more a spiritual focus, focus and today that's a big issue because even christians get wrapped up in all the other extraneous things to talk about with one another, uh, your health, your jobs, uh, you know, what's going on uh, politically and so forth. And we don't focus on the spiritual being of the person what's god doing in your life what are you reading in the scriptures Uh, how is he leading and directing you Uh, what what is it that you're going through that he's drawing you closer and closer to himself for example and we find that jude focused in on the more and more on the uh, uh, spiritual aspect of the person and number three we saw in verse three uh, last week that uh, the holy spirit gives a specific direction and you know you find yourself and so do i in such a way you say holy spirit what do you want us to do and you say would you please give clear direction what what is it you want me to do Uh, sometimes so much to what route do you want me to take to work as i go to work i'm going to be a faithful worker but what is it you want to do in my life as i go to work all these realms here he will give you specific direction and boy did he ever do that in jude's life as he changes what he's going to write about and he will do that for you and me that's i mean after all we're god's children he cares about everything he says that touches our life he causes all things therefore to work together for good and i know we often pull that out of context he says wait a minute, wait a minute, I do that for one purpose, I am conforming you, I'm making you every day a little bit more like the Lord Jesus Christ, my son. And so that puts a different light on what you and I find ourselves going through and what the Holy Spirit is fully intending to do. So he changes or gives us specific direction. We also learned this once for all delivered faith refers to this objective faith. Faith. It means the written word of God It's not a reference to your and my subjective faith. That is where we put our faith in Jesus to save us. No, he's talking about the once for all faith it means this book, this written word of God here. And as I shared with you last week, this objective faith from God is both complete and closed. It is complete. You don't need anything else for faith And practice to walk with the Lord. God says, I've given you everything right here in the written word of God. And secondly, it's also closed. You can see that those two tie together. But it's closed. In other words, uh, we do not need someone else's book or revelation or dream or voice out of heaven giving us a further thus saith the Lord. This is closed. It's complete. It's closed. And God told Jude to tell you and me that we are to contend earnestly for this closed and complete book of faith called the Bible. We're not just to know it. Dear ones, we're not just to believe it. And I'm glad we hopefully are in those two categories. We know it. We believe it. We're to contend earnestly for it. And uh, it's that word agony. And it's got a prefix, so it really intensifies the fight. The struggle, the agony that we're in, or what we're supposed to be doing and contending for it. And this exhortation from Jude was undoubtedly given to both the elders of the church that he's writing to, but also to the saints, the ones who attended that church, or if it's churches, the churches. Listen, how important is this? If we lose the written word of God, if we lose it, or if we let it become corrupted by man's additions and subtractions, thus polluting it, Satan will damn multitudes into hell. That's his goal. He hates two primary groups of people, the Jewish people, because he knows the scriptures, and what God says, how he's working out his program through them, even though they may not be aware of that. He makes it clear he's doing that. But he also knows that God has redeemed you and me we call the bride of the church as well and therefore satan hates us because he's lost us he says i may have lost you for eternity but i've not necessarily lost you for time and so that's why this becomes so crucial here why because paul declared for i am not ashamed of the gospel what is the gospel it's a written word of god it's god's revelation of how we're lost in how Jesus came and took our sin and died on that cross and bore our punishment and how God raised him from the dead. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And Peter preached, and we even saw that on the screen behind me, there is salvation and no other for there's no other name under heaven whereby, uh, given among men, whereby we must be saved. And earlier than that, Peter said to Peter when a lot of people were, I mean to Jesus, when a lot of people were defected and leave, defecting and leaving him, he stated to the Lord and Savior, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. It's interesting to me because you get into your Old Testament and those minor prophets. It doesn't mean they were minor. It just means what they wrote was kind of brief. And you come to Amos many, many, many years ago. And he warned of the danger of losing or corrupting God's written revelation, the faith, the body of faith here, to mankind. He wrote these words. This is from Amos. Behold. Days are coming, declares the Lord God. So now God's speaking. When I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger, he says, from sea to sea and from the north even to the east. They will go to and fro and seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Interesting. Do you know when you get to Genesis 11 in the Bible, you come to a situation called the Tower of Babel. Babel. And uh, what was Satan trying to do there? He was trying to bring in a one world government so that he could crush and stamp out any possibility of people hearing the gospel and getting saved. Of course, you know, God came down and confounded that effort of Satan. Now, where do we find ourselves? We are moving, I believe, quickly to that one world government and that one world religion. And I guarantee you the one goal that Satan will have, among other goals, is to destroy this book. So people will be damned. And a vast sea of them will be. And now Jude writes and explains Why? We're at that point now. Why he was moved by God the Holy Spirit to give such a strong exhortation to his readers, you and me, in verse 3. This takes us to this next verse, verse 4, that you can look at in your Bible. And we're going to concentrate on this verse this morning. Here's what we read. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, out of that verse, the first thing I want you to consider with me is this. The apostate's covert operation. In your outline, if you want to use it, we're going to look at that first. The apostate's covert operation. Now, you might recall an apostate is somebody who's known the truth. They've heard the truth. They might have even embraced it, but they never got saved. No believer can no genuine believer can ever be an apostate. But they've 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 known it, maybe embraced it, and then they have fallen away, they have turned away, they have rejected the truth, the written word of God. That's what an apostate is. So notice with me the apostates covert operation. They come quietly and subtly. You would expect that. They come, they come, number one, but they come quietly and and they come subtly. Jude describes their covert operation with these words. Verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Huh. They sneaked in. They were not observed. They came in unnoticed. In verse 12, Jude describes them as men who are hidden wreaths in your love feast. When they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. We're going to go to communion, but we don't do it like they did back there. They had a regular feast, you know, and people uh, would come in and they would eat and so forth at the time of fellowship. And these guys, they were right in the midst of all that. And But he says they were like hidden reefs. They had no idea of the devastating danger of having those people in their church. They come in quietly and subtly. Peter had written before that the apostates were going to come. He had mentioned that in Second Peter, but uh, here, he, in fact, he writes, But false prophets, this is Peter, But false prophets, prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be also false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Now Jude writes, they're here. Peter said, they're going to come. Jude says, guys, church, they're already here. They're here right in your very midst. Amazing. Do you not find it rather surprising that these folk that Jude is writing to seem to be unaware? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they seem to be totally unaware that these apostates are right there in the midst of the church. And that's why the Holy Spirit had him change his direction about what he's writing about. They they weren't They didn't even seem to have a clue about that. <laughs> you know, it tells me we really are just like sheep, aren't we? We just Just like sheep, very gullible so often. Paul knew they were coming. We talked about that last week. In Acts 20, he warned the Ephesian church elders, be on your guard, guys, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. That's a strong statement. Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own selves. Men will arise speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after them. Paul spoke those words around 57 AD, by the way. And then he writes his disciple, Timothy, in 63, six years later, approximately. Here's what he wrote to Timothy, who he had left to pastor the Ephesian church, or churches. Listen to what he wrote to Timothy just six years later. He says, for some men straying from these things they've strayed have turned aside to fruitless discussions wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matter about which they make confident assertions Paul adds these words fight the good fight Timothy keep faith and a good conscience which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck." That's not just a little thing here. That's not a little tiny hole in the side of your boat. They have suffered shipwreck, he says, in regard to their faith. That's a serious thing. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander. He even points out their names, whom I have handed over to Satan. Now, whatever it was, was pretty bad that he had to turn them over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. When Paul writes to Timothy again about four years after that, so now you're ten years later, from when he visited the Ephesian church and wrote those words in Acts 20. He writes, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. And now he lists two guys. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And they upset the faith of some. I, I wonder, what, what kind of teaching is that? If I got up here and said, Hey, folks, I just want you to know the resurrection's already passed. Forget that one. Think about your theology if that be the case. Why be here? You know, let's just go home. But here these guys were in the church allowed to teach that. That was just ten years later. The apostates, by the way, never show up boldly announcing to you and me, hey, just want you to know I'm an apostate. Looking for a place to teach. You got a class? That's not how they show up, and you obviously are aware of that. They creep in unnoticed. And they come with their credentials. I want you to notice that they come always with their credentials that gain them the hearing and the acceptance by God's people. Or at least by those who are perishing. And that's the second thing I want you to see. They come stressing their authority. I mean, you better listen to these guys. They've got authority. They've got something backing them up, a lot of education, a lot of, a lot of academia, a lot of degrees. As we saw in Peter's letter, they come with similar credentials as the false prophets. Well, that means somebody supposedly sent by God. You better listen to them. They come with authority. These aren't passive folk. They come as false teachers. Teachers. Again, Paul wrote Timothy about who? The teachers in the church. Hymenaeus and Alexander, or Philetus. We're teaching the people that the resurrection had already taken place. I so said that's very interesting theology. As I said before, as the seminaries go, listen carefully, as the seminaries go, so go the churches. Why? Well, you know why, because that's where the churches go to get their pastors and their leaders. And you need to be aware of that. You need to know what the seminaries are teaching. Especially if you're going to go to a seminary to think about bringing somebody on staff as senior pastor or associate pastor or whatever. You need to know what the seminaries are teaching and dig into that. Because as they go, so go the churches. The the, the future Bible and seminary teachers come from the uh, seminaries, and many of our missionaries get their training from the Bible schools and the seminaries. And as I've now been around long enough, I've seen the changes in many of our seminaries. It actually begins with just a little concession. Now, ladies, please, please bear with me. I was going to say forgive me, but you don't have to forgive me, but at least bear with me. Suddenly, there's pressure upon the seminaries to teach the women. I mean, teach them homiletics. What's homiletics? That's the art, science and art of preaching. Now, you see, that's not a real problem. I mean, because women have to get up front, and, and they teach classes and teach women. You're right there. But here's what happens. From that little edge there, suddenly the door opens wider. And suddenly you have women who are pastor. I call them pastoresses. Of churches Now, some of you might find offense about that, but I'll tell you what. I go to the requirements for the ones that God said will be uh, the the elders of the church, and uh, those those uh, requirements make it pretty clear from God. He ex- that doesn't mean the men are always going to be God. And that's why you're talking about Jude here. But that's a real concern, and that begins to be a little bit door that opens wide. Here's another one. The seminaries begin to think we need to be teaching psychology. You might guess where that one heads. And some of you are shaking your head because you already know because you've been there and seen that. So psychology now enters into the seminaries, and now we got to think. Well, what does the world say about this, and how do you teach this situation from the world viewpoint? And you certainly can't teach it from the Bible. I mean, that's not a psychological book. And so, so so you have psychology. And believe it or not, my seminary even went into the depth of adding psychiatry to that. They no longer have it now, but they did. And then here's another thing that happens. This is Satan. You see, he's making his inroads. And I want you to be aware of it because as the seminaries go, so go the churches. And I'm very concerned about this church. I'll get back to that in just a minute. But here's another thing. If you have the GI Bill. And you want to go to a seminary, then the G, the seminary has to comply by the requirements of the federal government. Now you got another problem there. Because here's a guy or lady that went into the service, and they want to go to this seminary, but they find out that their GI Bill is useless. Why? Because it doesn't comply with the government requirements. I just want you to be aware of what's going on here. I come back to myself because at my age, I, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to be here. I'm, we're all going to be raptured out here. But sometime, you know, I'm going to keel over. That's okay if I do it in the pulpit. I don't mind that. That's, that's a good way to go, right? But I am aware and very concerned that, we, you know, you're going to have to be thinking in terms of who's going to be the senior pastor. And I'm very concerned that it be somebody that is grounded in the Word and is going to be faithful to the once-for-all delivered faith. Amen? That's my concern, because so many multitudinous churches no longer are concerned about that. You end up with homosexuals and lesbians that are pastoring these churches, and the sad part about that is the ones that are sitting under their ministry. And here's some. well, we'll get into that. I'll just hold that off, because we're going to into it later on. Let me hold off on, on that one. Back to this thing of moving away from the once-for-all delivered faith, though. What happens when you get to Genesis account? You can ask Heinz because that's why he has apologetics, and I'm not always promoting Heinz. That's not my reason, but it's, it's what's going on. Well, well, wait a minute. I don't know that this Genesis account is a literal account about God just speaking forth the whole universe out of nothing in six days. I'm not so sure that Adam and Eve were really real human beings back there. And so what happened? Oh, it's Myth. Myth. That's what our young people are taught. That's the battle we're in and why we have to contend earnestly for the once-for-all delivered faith. The apostates come in stressing their authority. They always come with authority. As Peter says, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. They're secret, and they're going to introduce heresy. Look at verse 8. Back to Jude. Look at verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile the flesh, And reject authority and revile angelic majesties. I'll down the road, not today, we'll get into that a little bit more. But hey, these guys say, I've had authority. I've seen angels. I've not only seen angels, I have reviled those angels. Whoa, better listen to this guy. He's coming with credentials. He's coming with power. He's coming with authority. Surely God's hand must be upon him. That was happening there in this church that Jude has to address here. Verse sixteen goes on. It says they speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake why of gaining an advantage. And Jude continues telling us the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ warned us that these apostates would come mocking. They're going to mock. They're going to what? You believe in the the uh, literal word of God being from God without error? You believe that you can fully trust this book from God? I mean, that's antiquated. How could you do that? That's how they come. So I asked the question, how do you think so many churches today became pastored by homosexual folk, lesbians, reprobate people? It's very troubling, folks. These self-appointed pastors of these churches practice the depth of immorality while they hold up this Bible and say, I'm giving you the thus saith the Lord. That's very troubling. You talk about deadly danger and these folk by the thousands sit under them embracing their theology embracing their lifestyle and they really believe listen they really believe they're going to go to heaven they really believe that god is their heavenly father and they don't understand their one heartbeat from an eternal damnation in hell That's the warfare that's going on, and that's why Satan is doing everything he can to pollute and destroy the church and destroy this once-for-all delivered faith. And that's why Jude says God's leading him to say, you get in there and you fight, diligently fight for this once-for-all delivered faith. But don't miss the point that Jude stresses. These apostates always come stressing their authority. They come as teachers and as authority on the Bible and theology. And they wow you with their insight and their degrees. And that tends to be their covert operation. And that takes us now to the next main movement in your outline. It's an amazing one. The apostate's preordained doom. The apostate's preordained doom. God declares his strong opposition toward every apostate. I mean, this is a declaration now by God. He's having Jude write it. But this is God speaking from heaven. He declares his strong opposition opposition toward every apostate. And this is a very, very strong statement from God. He says this about every apostate. They were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. That's strong. In other words, God says he wrote long ago about the judgment he has reserved for them. That tells you something about God's severe wrath he has reserved for these apostates. And it's not hard for us to arrive at why God has such wrath reserved for them. As Paul made clear when he addressed the Ephesian elders, the church of God was purchased with his son's own blood. Blood he calls precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. But also... God knows these apostates always resist the Spirit of God. That's what Stephen said, didn't he, about those apostates. They always resist, you do always resist the Holy Spirit. And Satan uses them to blind the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the image of God, and come to saving faith. And once these apostates gain their foothold in a church... The people in that church are placed in the most extreme, deadly danger. I think of the masses that sit in churches today. They don't have a clue. But they're religious. They feel good. And they even feel confident in people. They feel confident. If anybody's in, they're in. If anybody's going to go to heaven, they're going to go to heaven. As they continue right on in that delusion. And that's why long ago God declared his strong opposition toward every apostate. And we see that next in number two. And that's Jude's Old Testament examples of God's intense judgment upon the apostates. God's intense judgment upon the apostates. Now it's interesting because the illustrations he used, I don't think he's saying that they necessarily are damned. Now some are, obviously. But, he's, but I think he uses the illustrations to show the intensity of his judgment. I think that's what he's doing here. Excuse me. this morning we're not going to go into the depth of these illustrations that he uses as I said that will be for another time because there's so much in there that I need to cover Uh, but they're given in verse 5 through 7 and we're just going to highlight each one of them this morning he takes all three of his examples out of the Old Testament in which his readers are very familiar with look at verse 5 he says now I desire to remind you so they know this I desire to remind you though you know all things once for all I find you're going to find this interesting because of what he's going to say next. That the Lord, here's illustration number one, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. Illustration number one. He takes them, what they're very familiar with, the Exodus. He says, you know that story. Your forefathers were slaves in Egypt, and they saw how God miraculously delivered them out of that Egyptian bondage of slavery. They saw those miracles. And then God takes them to the brink of the Red Sea. And right there, you know, here comes Pharaoh's army. And once again, they think they're done for. And they saw God, incredible, open up that vast sea of water. And they were told to walk through on dry ground. They got to the other side. And Moses put his hands up or whatever. And the water came crashing down on all those Egyptians. He destroyed them all. And then look. They, they were out there with maybe a couple million. We don't know how many, but there was a mass group of people and all their animals as well. They took their livestock with them. You're in a desert, a wilderness out there, a, 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 a hard situation, no water, no food. So you got at least a million people, all this livestock, and every single day he provided water. In fact, The book of Psalms says he even caused rain out there for them. And you know, he struck the rock twice and water came out of that and food out of heaven and quail. He, I mean, for those millions of mouths, both the people and the livestock to feed, they went through that for, for that period of time and they saw these miracles and finally it came time for them to put their faith in God and go in and conquer the land and they refused to go. They voted 10 to 2 not to do it. And God said, I've had it. That's enough for me. And his wrath came out. And I mean, what a wrath. He said, I will lay every single one of that first generation low in the desert. They're all going to die because they wouldn't move forward by faith. That's the example he uses here. So not, that, by the way, when he talked about apostasy, I don't think he means that all those of that first generation that died in the wilderness went to hell. If that's the case, where did uh, Moses and Aaron go? So that's not the case. But he uses that as an example of his intense wrath and judgment upon such as these apostates then he comes to the second illustration what's amazing about this he says you people know this know what look at verse six look at verse six in your bible and angels this is illustration number two out of the old testament and angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day what's that all about now We know that God created a certain number of angels, and a certain number of them under Lucifer or Satan rebelled. We know that. And they were kicked out of heaven. That's what we call demons, fallen angels. But he narrows that group down to a specific group of people, he says. They didn't keep their own domain. They did something that was so beyond comprehension that God says, I kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. I think he's talking about something that happened there in Genesis 6 that caused God to bring on a worldwide flood. We'll get to that on another Sunday. But the point being, look at God's intense, fiery wrath and judgment. That group of angels, not all the fallen angels, but that specific group, whatever they did... And by the way, those angels were created in, before God. They were righteous. They were in heaven. They saw the glory of God. They saw the glory of heaven. They saw the glory of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ before he came to earth. They saw all that, and they turned away from it. And not only did they turn away from it and follow Satan, but this group did it something even beyond that. And God says, because I'm pouring out my... Inti-. Remember now, he's using an illustration of why he will pour his wrath out on these apostates. What a frightening thing to be in that category. Well, so much more, but we'll leave that to another time. He comes now to the third illustration, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, and I think that's the angels, he said, antecedent goes back to these to the angels, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. We don't need to go into the story you know well. What do he do? He he got Lot and his family out of there, and he rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. Those are the three illustrations he he uses out of the Old Testament to say this is God's intense judgment on these apostates. What a frightening situation. But he doesn't quit at that. He actually throws in a fourth. Look with me, and, and by the way, this is in your old testament but you're not going to read it in your old testament this one you've got to get from jude and that's jude 14 and 15 tells you about the prophet enoch first of all you'd find out that he was a prophet it was also about these men that enoch in the seventh generation from adam prophesied saying behold the lord came with many thousands of his holy ones he's telling something that's yet future put in the past tense but it's future To execute judgment upon them, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way. Boy, use that word ungodly over and over and over. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Enoch, way back there, prophesied. About these people. And may I say, I believe that carries right on into the tribulation that's yet to take place. And these people that are going to say ungodly spoken, speak ungodly things against our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So he actually has four illustrations out of the Old Testament of the intense wrath of God. Amazing. That's why long ago, long ago, God declared with strong opposition toward every apostate. And we see that next in, I'm sorry, going on to the next part here in your outline here. Before I get there, though, I want to talk about the apostate's preordained doom a little bit more. When God comes to closing his written revelation, this book you hold in your hands called the Bible, when he comes to the conclusion of the revelation he writes and gives to us, he writes these words. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But... For the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. By the way, how does the Bible define liars? Those that say that Jesus is not the Christ, the Son of God. First John two twenty two says that. And he continues in in the last chapter of the book of Revelation. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, of this book, and I think it's not just Revelation, it expands over the whole of the written word of God. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in the book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which is written in this book. Serious stuff. And dear ones, it's happening all over. It's happening in our seminaries, Bible colleges that have gone liberal. It's happening in church after church after church. Amazing. And that brings us to the next and last part in your outline, the apostate's Two revealing marks. Normally always weird, normally always, but nonetheless true. Two revealing marks. First of all, they turn God's grace into licentiousness. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Jude described these apostates who crept into the church unnoticed as being ungodly. How does God in the Bible describe ungodliness? well let's look together turn if you would or you can see it behind me on the wall and you're familiar with these scriptures we're going to look at the last part of romans chapter one this is an ungodly culture society and we're just going to look at the last part how god describes ungodliness verse 28 to the end of chapter one and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge god any longer boy that's america don't see fit to acknowledge him as god any longer God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's America, graphically described. Boy, you don't have to go far to see the depravity there in their thinking, what they try to do. To do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. Full of envy, murder. Forgive me, but I watch the 5 o'clock news, local news, every night to see who got killed. You know why? Because it's just commonplace anymore. You know that somebody out there is going to kill somebody. It's just commonplace. Strife. Oh, we don't see that in this nation. Huh. Deceit. Malice. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God. Oh, they hate God. Insolent, arrogant, boastful. Those all three fit together. Inventors of evil. Disobedient to parents. By the way, when I went to school as a kid, if you're in trouble at school, man, I was in trouble at home. Not anymore. You're in trouble at school, it means you better, somebody better get a hold of the parents, of uh, uh, the teachers and straighten them out. It's sad. Without understanding, my, you can't reason with these people. That sea of people, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although, although they know the ordinances of God, they know it, people, they know it. Even if they've got a seared, burnt out conscience, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. And they even do it from the pulpit. Even holding up the word of God and do it from the pulpit. Turn to Second Timothy 3, because these are the guys that tend to get into the pulpit. Second Timothy 3. Paul writes to Timothy, and now Paul's about to go off the scene here. He's about to go home to heaven and be with the Lord. He says, Timothy, realize this, that in the last days, and that began with the Lord's coming here, so we've been in the last days, and I think we're in the last of those last days, difficult times will come. By the way, I sense that we may not have a clue of how difficult they're yet going to be for us. Don't depend on Donald Trump. Pray much for him, but I don't think he's going to be able to hold this dam that's going to break if difficult days are about to come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient parents. A lot of the things you read there in Romans 1. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. You can't reconcile them. Malicious gossips without self-control. How about this one? Brutal, brutal. Haters of good. Isn't that something? You can put out good before you. Look, this is really valuable. It's benefit. It's helpful. I don't care. I hate it. Treacherous. Reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. And now he describes them. For among them are those who enter into households, and these are the teachers. And they're looking for followers. They enter into households because it wasn't church buildings back then, it was households, and captivate weak women weighed down with sins. They're looking for an audience, they're looking for people that will accept them. Led on by various impulses. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Is that not a description today? we got new stuff to learn now. It doesn't matter that it goes against the written word of God. It's new and important that you know that. And this is what will now be. It's now okay to accept this lifestyle and live this way. Because we have new knowledge here. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? It's a revealed, written word of God. Thus saith the Lord. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regards to the faith. One more cross-reference. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11, because this gets right down to the issue of Jude. Chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, verse 12-15. through 15, Paul describes it here. But what I am doing, I will continue to do. He had to boast. He didn't like it, but he had to defend his apostleship. So that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are. Yeah, they come in as prophets called by God to preach and lead you in this matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder for even Satan disguises Himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Hey, I'm a servant from God that declare to you what's right and wrong, whose end will be according to their deeds. They turn God's grace into licentiousness. And the writer of Hebrews asked this probing question. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Sobering. The word licentiousness, by the way, means unrestrained gross immorality. These apostates flaunt God's grace by indulging in unchecked open immorality. Here's how Peter describes them. He said many will follow their sensuality. Because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. There you go. The way of the truth is going to be maligned because they follow their sensuality. They indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. It's not just a nighttime thing with them. It's a lifestyle. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease. Are you surprised when you read about these television evangelists, preachers that fall? That in mass, so many of them, not all of them are, are after uh, money, compounded upon, compounded upon compound money. They never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. We saw that in Second Timothy 3, having a heart trained in greed, and he ends, accursed children. That's how he describes them. They're not just men, by the way. They're women as well. Just make a visit to the church in Thyatira. They're in Revelation. Jesus wrote these words I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. And I wonder who in the name of common sense would name their daughter Jezebel. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, he says, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. You know what I think? I think he's talking about the great tribulation. They're going to go into that and the result will be, he said... I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I'll give to each one of you according to your deeds. You know, a question, though, for you and me, because you can look at this and say, Okay, I'm not, I'm not there. I'm, that's not where I am. That's good. That's good. But here's a question for you and me to give some serious thought to, especially in this culture today. Do you turn God's grace into licentiousness? Do you turn his grace into licentiousness? It was a problem. So much so that Paul wrote these words to the church there in Ephesus. He said, for this, turn the page here, for this you know with certainty. Hold it, I'm going to say this, the churches today do not know what I'm going to say or what Paul's going to say with certainty anymore. They don't know anymore what he's going to say with certainty in this culture. But you know this with certainty, he says to the Ephesian believers, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an adulterer has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Then walk as children of light. Boy, that's powerful. Would you say our culture today and our churches today need to hear that message? Any mumbling anymore besides the mumble out there? It's interesting to me. When you reject the once for all delivered faith, the written word of God, you develop a religion or a lifestyle, a set of beliefs that always supports your sin. Do you see that? You just develop your own religion so you can do what you want. And that's what's going on in Mass today. Amazing. Secondly... They deny Jesus' lordship. They deny Jesus' lordship. They are ungodly persons, Jude says, who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They do this in two ways. First, they deny the denial is manifested in how they live. We saw that already. It's how they live. They deny Him being in control of their life and them yielding to Him and living a godly, pure life. I don't mean you... Don't ever fall into sin, have evil thoughts, do wrong things, say wrong things. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about these people out and out deny it. And they go blatantly, blatantly into a wicked lifestyle. So they, this denial is manifest in how they live, and we've seen that already. But secondly, this denial is manifest in what they teach, and I mentioned that. They always create a religion, a set of beliefs that supports what they're doing, even though it's sin. Peter described them as false teachers who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Now, I'll bet 75% of you could probably quote, with well, a King James, New American Standard, what? Romans 10, 9, and 10. You don't have to, but I'll try it. Paul wrote those words, God had him, write him, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is the Lord. So it starts there. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that's your whole innermost being. That's everything about you. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. That's the birth. That's being born into God's family. And then he just explains it. For with the heart man believes, remember that? Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. With the heart man believes resulting in what? Righteousness. What happens? The Lord, at, the, at that very point, split second, the Holy Spirit comes into your life and gives, comes into your being, I should say, and He quickens your spirit. You, you, you come alive. You have eternal life at that point. And what happens is the Lord takes all your sin, all your deserved punishment. In fact, this is what this represents. And He gives you, it's called imputation. He gives you His righteousness. That's why God can put up with you even though you still are a sinful being, but you're a redeemed sinful being. You are clothed with his son's righteousness. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, he said, for with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with a mouth now, something happens. If you're wonderfully saved, your mouth confesses confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory and praise of God. First Corinthians twelve says, verse three, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. You say, Oh yeah? I can go out here to a street person and say, i got 20 bucks. Just say, Jesus, Lord, it's yours. Sure, they can say it. That's not what that means. You know that. It means if you're saying that with all your heart, then something's happened. God, the Holy Spirit, has come into you and quickened you, and you are born into God's family. And if you're here this morning, and we probably have some in that situation, I encourage you to get that settled. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe. By the way, but let's go back to that. What does that mean? Confess that he is Lord. (laughs) I'll tell you what it means. It means you're saying you are god that's what that's saying you are god i am sinful before you i deserve the judgment that you declare in the once for all delivered faith and that is if i died right now i'm going to go to hell i deserve that and i don't want that i want you to come in i'm surrendering my life to you that's what that means confess that jesus is lord it means it's not just words it's not just words and that's a concern because some people will just pray a little prayer and think i'm in and then what happens? They find themselves right back there, what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5, continuing on in immorality and so forth, and that's not salvation. Now, I know you're going to have a battle and a fight. I know that. The Scripture talks about that. But you're a transformed person that's been born into God's family. You love God. You love His Word. You hate your sin. And by the way, these people don't hate their sin. They love it. They flaunt it. They promote it. Quite a difference here. So what what do you say about being genuinely saved? How do you live or how does your life evidence you are committed to contending earnestly for this once for all delivered faith we know to be the Bible, the written word of God? Are you growing in your grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you becoming more and more being transformed from glory to even greater glory? There's got to be some folk. There's got to be a little bit of that. There's got to be certain little things that are happening in your and my life because God says he's causing all things to work together to create that in you, that you and I will become more and more like Jesus. By the way, one thing you'll find, you'll hate your sin more and more. You'll hate the fact that you fall into sin. You'll struggle with that. That's okay. That's okay. But are you seeing that you're, contented, you, you are, you're committed to the once for all delivered faith and you're contending earnestly for that? I think about that because I was laying in bed, not sleeping very much. Again, this early, early morning, I was thinking about people who've been under my ministry, young people, and a number of them are no longer in church at all, gone, gone. You know what happens normally? They fall in love with somebody who else is not in church, and there's no guarantee that God is going to draw them back. Somehow, we hope that, of course, pray that. No guarantee of that. But what happened? The writer Hebrew says, "Beware." Lest you drift. For how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Dear ones, this is a culture and day we live in. And I'll go right on preaching it until God takes me home. It's so important. So we have here the apostates, two revealing marks. They turn God's grace into licentiousness. They deny Jesus' lordship. They just do whatever sins they choose to do. But we will contend earnestly for this faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, really just one verse there, verse 4. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Amazing. They were back there and Jude had to write about them being in that church and we see it all over today. Churches that we would say have no life in them, filled with people perhaps that are religious, that embrace that which you hate, who think they're going to heaven but are not. Oh, Father, and the culture, the culture is putting pressure on even this church, about what are you preaching? What are you believing? How dare you to say there is a once-for-all delivered faith? How dare you to say there is absolute right and absolute wrong? How dare you to support somebody who would be in favor of that which is strictly right? The, the battle is heating up, Lord. And I pray that we would be faithful to contend earnestly. Agony, deep agony, battling for this once-for-all delivered faith, even in our own homes as well as in the church and outside the church protect us prepare us use us for your glory we pray in jesus name amen